Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and of Jacob, we come into your presence this morning to praise you for the great things that you have done. We praise you that you have withheld judgment from our nation and from this world once again. But we know that this will not last forever. And so we pray this morning that we who hear your word will be instructed by it, that it would not be cold, dead words on a page in a book that was written long ago, that it would be a living word, that it would be not as if a man is speaking here in this place this day, but it would be as if you were speaking directly to us. Forgive the preacher this morning of his many shortcomings. Unstop all of our ears and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. May your word, as you have said, not return to you void this day. And we pray that we would be a people who are doers of your word and not hearers alone. Forgive us, we pray, of our many sins. And may our hearts be attentive to your word on this, the Lord's day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. My sermon title this morning is Stephen's Swift and Severe Sermon, taken from our scripture reading, the Acts of the Apostles and chapter 7. It's not a very in-depth sermon. It might be seen as quite elementary. You know, once I preached in a church and I asked one of the elders there, what did you think of the sermon and was it okay? And he said, well, you can't go wrong just preaching the gospel. He thought that it was somewhat elementary just to preach the gospel. It was merely preaching Christ and him crucified. What a terrible thing for an elder to say. What a terrible thing for a preacher even to preach, you would think. A simple sermon. But no, this morning's sermon will be simple also, just as the disciple Stephen's sermon was simple. If you cast your eyes to verse 51 of chapter 7, here Stephen is in full flight. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. It's not very good if I start the sermon at this point. If I was still at theological college, I would probably fail for starting at this point. So turn back with me to chapter 6, where we see the setting of what has taken place here. Who is this man, Stephen, who has come to be in this position? Well, in chapter 6 and verse 1, we read the word of God. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, that is the daily offering. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Here is the choosing of another 
who will be in a position of leadership in the church. But notice he's not actually called to preach. In the modern church we say that this man was set aside purely to be a deacon. His task was purely to serve tables. But as we continue on, we see Stephen, who's been chosen by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, we see him being put in a very difficult position. Verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith, that is belief and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedman, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses, who said this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered us to. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Here we see the setting. Here we see the calling of this man, Stephen, really into the office of purely being a deacon. That he was just to be concerned with trivial things, many people would say. But God has plans for Stephen. Don't ever think that if you are a Christian, you are called merely to one particular task. You will find yourself as a Christian in difficult positions throughout your whole life. What are you to do? Are you to say, well, no, 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 I'm just called to children's ministry. No, this isn't my place. I go to work and I do the things that I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to speak the word of God in my workplace because the church has allocated me a position as a children's speaker. No. Here we see Stephen being allocated into the office of a deacon and all of a sudden his faith has led him before the leaders of Israel. Now these men, we're told later on that the high priest was assembled there, that the scribes were there and the elders of the nation of Israel, these men were political men. They were men who had authority in civil things. They were important men in society, and so what they said went. And so here Stephen is dragged before the council of elders and before the high priest, and false claims are made about him. But what does Stephen do? Does Stephen find himself in this position and say, hang on a minute guys, hang on, let's just backtrack a moment. I didn't actually say these things. What did Christ do? We're told in the prophecy of Christ by Isaiah that as a lamb before or a sheep before its shearers is silent, that he opened not his mouth. And that as Christ went through his trial, what did he do? He didn't open his mouth. 
He didn't say, no, 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 the charges that you've brought against me are false. He didn't try and defend himself. Nor did Stephen. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, stood before the leaders of Israel. He wasn't concerned about what they thought about him. He was concerned about the truth. And where does he start? He starts in his sermon with the word of God. He doesn't start explaining himself. He begins with God's word. You know, in theological colleges these days, they tell you to start normally with some witty little fact, perhaps a joke, maybe some theological truth or historical truth, because you need to ease people into your sermon. You can't just pull out God's word and just jump into it and expect people to be on the same page as you. No, no, no. You've got to woo people in. The preacher has to get people to think that he's just like them. I pray that you're not like me. But Stephen would have failed a preaching course at Theological College today. He doesn't start with some little anecdote. He doesn't start with talking about something that happened during the week with him. No, he starts with God's word. You know, not many preachers do that these days. They want to have high fives from everybody. They want to be relevant. But in doing so, they lose the gospel. But Stephen here, being full of the Holy Spirit, in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. He starts all the way back with Moses. This isn't fashionable today. Fancy somebody getting up to address political leaders today and starting with Genesis 1-1, for example. The world says, no, no, this is all just a myth. And unfortunately, the church in many places says that this is a myth. And so they push aside the word of God. They try and win people to Christ by not using God's word. They say to themselves, we'll do it our way because we know best. We've raised above all religion and all of the foolish things of religion. No, 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 no. We'll worry about that later. We only need just a little bit of God's word. We can tailor it to suit ourselves because many in the church are embarrassed by it. So many theological colleges today want to say the first 11 chapters of Genesis are just purely myth. There's no truth in them. It doesn't matter what they actually mean because we don't believe them. It's ridiculous. Here Stephen starts with God's word. He reminds the leaders of Israel where they have come from. The men who are supposed to be upholding the truths of God's word have pushed them aside. Oh, brethren, I pray that you never do that in this church. I pray that you never just say, well, so-and-so is a youth leader, or so-and-so's just involved in children's ministry. Don't ever do that. Do things according to God's word. 
because Stephen wasn't necessarily called to preach in the office that he was brought to. No, God raised him up for this very purpose. He wasn't very politically correct, Stephen. How rude it would have been for him to come before these learned men, great men, their standing in society was so high and lofty above his own, he was really just nobody of importance. How politically incorrect of him to come before these people and to dare preach God's word at them. To dare to do that, the audacity of the man. He must have been full of himself, many would say today. I know I've had that sprouted about me. How dare you come in here, you young man? How can you possibly know these things and just preach these things? But we're told that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Trinitarian Christian here today, that is a biblical Christian, you'll know that the Holy Spirit is not just tacked on to God. No, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Son. So when Stephen speaks, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking God's word. And what are we told in Scripture? That God is not a respecter of man. Should Stephen have hopped up and should he have been a little bit worried about what these people's concerns were? Perhaps he should have sat down with them all and heard them individually. No, God is not a respecter of man. God called Stephen to this office. He filled him with the Holy Spirit and he made him preach. Stephen couldn't just write a nice polite letter and just speak to them all individually, perhaps go to their houses and try and win them over to Christ. No, he put Stephen in this position and he put the very words in his mouth. Don't ever try and make the gospel palatable. It is not. To those who are perishing, God's word tells us what? It is foolishness. Whenever we try and water down the gospel to make it palatable, we are doing God's word a disservice. Let me read from a minister who lived in the 19th century. I suppose he was a Bible basher like me, somewhat of a dinosaur. He was in the Church of England in that time. He was a man who suffered greatly. He was sent to the south of Ireland to proclaim God's word. And people were hostile at him. And he suffered greatly in that time. But he says this, Simplicity, transparency and truthfulness are some of the leading features of the gospel. And men of intellect and power may be well aware of themselves and stand in dread lest they should be carried away and corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. A memorable remark of the late Bishop Sumner occurs to us at the moment of writing, he says. A young minister, a friend of our own, had been preaching. The bishop expressed his satisfaction with the sermon, but said after a pause, I am not sure, but it was the manner rather than the matter that pleased me. Ah, here is the danger. Not what ministers say, but how they say it. Men in earnest, whether they occupy pulpit or pew, will deal with substance, not with passing shadows. 
If I am sick of fever or agonised with pain, I care little about the manner of the man who succeeds in giving me relief, whereas the most delightfully turned sentences will afford me but little gratification if so be the speaker leaves me in anguish in which he found me. It is not the manner that we are to look at in sermons. It is the manner. It's the matter. The matter is the core of the sermon. Stephen begins with God's word and he finishes with God's word. He's not concerned with how these people are living their lives, whether they have great bank balances and whether they've paid all their bills and whether they're living comfortably wherever they may be. He doesn't care. The Holy Spirit, let me tell you today, is not concerned with what is going on in your life, first and foremost. The Holy Spirit will work in the heart of a dead sinner and quicken them before doing anything. Before any reformation takes place, there must be repentance which is born of God. God's not concerned about whether you're comfortable in life. God may well be concerned about your eternal state. Don't ever forget that. Stephen's sermon brings great offence. It's hard-hitting when he says these words in chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold, that is, prophesied the coming of the righteous one, that is, Christ, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So hard-hitting. You can imagine being in that setting with these leaders and how things were heating up. You can imagine how these men, who were supposed to be stewards of God's word, you can imagine how they felt. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking the same thing. You're thinking, this guy hasn't started with witty stories and he's not here to tell us a nice, happy, rosy story. No, I'm here to preach God's word, just as Stephen was. He wasn't concerned with what they thought of him. You know, so many Christians today are concerned with what the world thinks of them. And we can all fall into this trap. It's very easy. We like to live comfortably. The Apostle said, if possible, live peacefully with all men. Well, we know his history. We find himself in jail. We find himself not living peacefully with all men. But he said, if possible, strive to do that. We are to do the same, but what do we see brought out in Scripture time and time again? Those who stand for the truths of God's word don't have to move very far before they find persecution and trouble. Perhaps if somebody just got to Stephen earlier on and just said, just cool it down a little bit, just tone it down for these men, he would have survived. But in doing so, he would not have glorified his heavenly Father. This is how we as Christians are to live. 
I'm not sure if you saw the news yesterday. You see that man, the leader of the opposition party, Bill Shorten, having a rant about homosexual marriage. Joel might contact me after I say this, but anyway, that man was saying, see, Christians just need to put their religion aside. What rubbish. He's not putting his religious views aside, but somehow we are all to put our religious views aside and we're to just have this umbrella of love. Disregard God's word, disregard the truth of it, and let's just all love one another. Okay, Mr. Shorten, let's take that further. Let's open the jails and let's let out murderers and pedophiles and terrible people because we love them. It's wrong for us to discriminate against anyone. Let's do what we think is right. He wants us to return to the days of the judges. In fact, I think that's probably the day that we're living in today, the day when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Why? Because we're greater than God now. We'll do things our way. This is what Mr. Shorten wants. Cultural relativism. That is, we'll do things according to what works best for us. Put aside your religion. Perhaps if Stephen had have put aside his religion, he would have lived a lot longer. But he couldn't. The Christian can't. When we go to the ballot box, we cannot put aside our religion. It is impossible. You can't put off Christ when you step in to vote. It's not possible. It's like those who say, oh, politics should be separate from the pulpit. Rubbish. They can't be separated. You as Christians should be saying to the man in the pulpit, preach God's word. Don't sugarcoat it, tell us the truth. We're not interested in how you preach, we're interested in the heart of the matter. We're interested in the truth of God's word. So many liberal churches, they don't like this. They sack men for preaching this way or they never invite them back again. I'm not sure if you feel that way about me, but anyway. Stephen didn't care. Christians are not to care what non-believers think of them. Understand that if you only take one thing from this sermon today, if you are in Christ, don't worry about what the world thinks of you. God chooses fruitcakes. I'm a fruitcake for Christ. You should be a fruitcake for Christ also. If you are in him, you will make a stand. You will lose your family and friends. People will hate you for it. And guess what? One day in this nation, it may even cost you your very life. Don't worry about these things. These are the things that the world go after. The possessions and the temporal things which are fleeting. The praise and the honour of man which will only last you for maybe 80, 90 years, 100 years if you're blessed. It won't do you any good for eternity in heaven or eternity in hell if you live the way that you want to. No, Stephen couldn't put aside his religion to deal with political people, just as we must not. Don't listen to the Bill Shortens of this world who say it's all about love. Doesn't the Bible teach love? Yes, it does, but true love. The love and justice of a holy God. And so Stephen started with God's word 
and he didn't care what they thought of him. He reminds them the audacity of this man to remind them of what they had done in the past, to drag up what their fathers had done, to remind them of prophets such as Jeremiah who had gone before, who we now know as the weeping prophet, a man who spent time in prison, a man who agonised over preaching God's word, men like Ezekiel who had to do what we would say were awful things for the sake of God's word. He reminds them of these things. What an awful thing to remind them of their sin. I know I've had people say to me, you always preach about sin. You're like some Old Testament preacher going on and on about sin. Why? Because these people think they've risen above that. We don't need to hear anything more about that. We've arrived. Well, I haven't arrived. The Word of God certainly doesn't talk about arriving until going to glory. The Christian is to flee from sin. But we hate hearing about it. It grates on us. And it grated on those men assembled in that council that day to be reminded by their own word of what they had done. They didn't want to hear these things, and especially when the name of Christ came up. It was all too much for them. They thought that they had dealt with this man. He'd been crucified. They thought it was all over. They thought, we can just live peacefully now. That troublemaker's gone. No, they couldn't. Because God was raising up more followers after Christ. God was raising up more preachers of righteousness in his word. They couldn't escape it. God sends Stephen right into the lion's den as it would be. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to their heart. That is, that they were grieved. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. That just summarises everything. They absolutely hated what he was saying. They couldn't bear it anymore. Their anger was rising and rising within them, just as the dead sinner does who sits in the pew, who hears sin being preached against. They will leave the congregation, and perhaps if they're with their husband or wife, they may have a rant on the drive home about how awful that man was who was preaching. How horrible it was that he kept telling them that they were sinners. I remember one man who went to church every week, that told me why he left the church. It was because the minister called everybody a sinner. And he didn't want to be called a sinner any longer. And so he left. He went to a church where they didn't use that word. He went to a church where it was all inviting and everybody was welcome and nobody was ever judged and everything was just wonderful and God's word was just mere poetry that was read at certain part of the liturgies but was never spoken of. Why? Because he hated it. And these men here, being preached to, hate it. They're not happy with what's being said. And what do we see as their anger is rising within them? They're so full of hatred towards God and to his word that they can't even stop themselves. Their anger has now overtaken them so much that we're told in verse 55, sorry, 54, that they were cut to their heart, they gnashed at him with their teeth. 
And then later on we're told that they ran at him with one accord. As their hatred built up within them, they acted together. You see how evil works? You know that old saying, misery loves company? Evil and sin loves company too. I remember before I was saved and I used to go out on drunken binges, I would never do it by myself. I would always have my friends come along with me. Why? Because what I knew I was doing, I knew it was wrong. My conscience was condemning me. But I would have people come around me who were also condemning their consciences and we would sear our consciences together and we would encourage one another. That's how sin and that's how evil works. It's very rare it works alone. It may start in our minds with a thought, but we always love somebody to accompany us in our sin. And so we bring others along. And so these men, as they were joined together in common unity, and that was hatred of Christ, they could all all of a sudden unite to kill their enemy. As Stephen stood there and preached the word of God to them, you can imagine them all coming together. There was no judgment made. It was just chaos. Nobody was in control because everybody was in control. Every one of them, their anger had overcome them so much and overtaken them that they worked as one accord and they wanted to destroy God's word so much because their father, the devil, was in them. But if you are in Christ, like the preacher today, you by his grace have overcome the devil. You by his grace have overcome sin. And you won't be overtaken by this. You won't be out with the world drinking on Friday and Saturday nights and going to nightclubs and acting like the world. You won't be found swearing and blaspheming and carrying on like someone who hates God. But you know what I found? Many people who profess to be Christians can be found doing those exact things. And they can even justify it to themselves. They say, oh, well, you don't want to be a wowser. You know, you want to show people that you like them. No, I don't. I want people to know that I am a sinner, but I want them to know that by the grace of God I have been transformed. Stephen's old self, before he was saved probably would have been found amongst these men. You know, we like to think very highly of ourselves. We like to think, oh, no, no, no. The preacher's just using preacher language here. No, 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 he would never be found that way. No, Christ says, if you are not in him, you are doing the work of the devil, Satan. That you are following after Satan. So don't think that you wouldn't be found among these people. Because when push comes to shove, if you are not in Christ, you will do this. Just as the world throughout history reveals time and time again that many so-called good people do horrible, vile things. I remember one minister who was sent to meet one of the Nazis who had sent so many to the gas chambers. I think maybe this man's name was Eichmann. He was a horrible man who killed hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, led them to their deaths. 
And you know, this preacher came away and he said to somebody, they said, what, what was he like? When you looked in his eyes, what was he like? Was he just a monster? And he said, you know, the thing that scared me most about that man, he said, when I looked into his eyes, he said, you know what he looked like? He said, he just looked like me. Don't ever think that these are just monsters behind bars. People that murder and kill and rape and do terrible things. No, they're people just like you and me. We are capable of horrible things if we are not in Christ. And there is nothing but the grace of God that will restrain us. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, was not concerned with what men and women thought of him. He wasn't concerned about the world because in verse 55, when they all start to gnash their teeth at him and when they're getting angry at him, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can you imagine him being in this position? The hatred and the evilness that was being poured out upon him. But the great glory of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God being poured out even greater than the powers of evil, so much so that he could look into the heavens and he could say what he saw. He didn't care about all those things because God and the power of the Holy Spirit blocked them out. He wasn't preaching in and of himself. He wasn't speaking in and of himself. He was speaking being full of the Holy Spirit. He could gaze into heaven and who could he see? God the Father and Christ at his right hand in all of their glory. Christ seated down, not as any high priest ever did in the Old Testament, No, Christ's sacrifice was finished. His sacrifice is not ongoing. When he hung on that Roman cross, he cried out before he gave up his life, it is finished. What was he saying? Did it mean that people had to come to him and then work out their own salvation through works? No. And then it was finished that moment. That their salvation was in him. Three days later when he was gloriously resurrected, it was utterly complete. And so when Stephen stood there preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, he could see Christ in all of his fullness. He could see him in his splendor before he was going to lay down his life. Brethren, you may think that this was just for a specific time. No, it's not. There are men and women and children who are in Christ throughout the world, even this day, who are being put in this situation for their faith. Who God has raised up for a purpose and who are prepared to lay down their lives. Christ said we must leave everything and follow after him. He said, do you think that I've come to bring peace? No, he said, I've come to bring a sword. I've come to cause division because ultimately there will be a great division on that judgment day when the sheep and the goats are separated and the sheep he will put on one side and the goats on the other side and he will say to his sheep, 
Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared before the foundation of the world for you. Not for the others, but for you, the sheep, the ones who have heard my voice, the ones who are prepared to go through living agony. Why? Because they've heard my voice. They know that I'm the good shepherd. If you're not prepared to go through agonies for Christ, and I say this as gently as I can today, I submit to you that that is because you are not in It's because you are not saved and you are going about things your own way. This isn't very politically correct today to say these things in church, of course, but I'm not cared about, I don't care about political correctness. I'm concerned about your soul. I'm not, I don't care about passing fleeting love that only lasts a lifetime. I'm concerned about the love of God. His eternal love for His people. If you know nothing about what I'm preaching today, you need to repent. You need to repent and come to Christ, who says, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you are going through life on your own steam, you will fail. You will think that you're getting along pretty well. You may live in a nice house. You may drive a nice car. You may have a nice healthy bank balance, but it won't help you. God, who is not a respecter of man, cares nothing about those things. If you do not repent and come to Christ, you will spend hell in eternity. A loving God will send you there for your sins. Make no doubt about it. God is a holy God who will not be mocked. If you are a sinner like me, you need a saviour. Don't be like the man who said to me, I stopped going to that church because the preacher said I was a sinner. Let me tell you, I am a sinner. The Apostle Paul said this, that he was the chief of sinners. How much more should we be prepared to say that? How much more should we who live on the other side of the cross, having God's word in its entirety, be prepared to come to Christ, to flee from the wrath to come? Don't do as the world does and do it on your own steam. Do as Stephen did. Do things in the Holy Spirit by the grace of God and don't care what people think about you. Let me tell you, brethren, it's going to cost you your job. It will cost you friends. It will cost you family. And dare I say that in the future of this nation it may cost you your life. Don't be concerned with things that are fleeting. Do as Stephen did. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. As he was being stoned, he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this, he died. Don't leave this place this morning thinking that you're right with God. Leave this place knowing that by his grace you are right with him. The commandment, God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. There is salvation in no other. I plead with you this morning, don't do it. Don't leave this place thinking that your life is good, it is not. 
Your life is a wreck if you are in your sin. You don't know it, but you are coming to judgment before a holy God who will not miss you. For those of us who are in Christ, be reminded and encouraged this day as you face tribulation to look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, not ourselves. Don't do what the world does and look into yourself to try and find some hope. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes upon him, the only one who can save man from their sins. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have not left your people alone in this world. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that is ongoing even this very day throughout the world. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness of so many down through the ages who have proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Christ, for those who have lived the truth of the glorious gospel, for those who have shed their blood so that we may have liberty. We do pray that you would remind those in politics today, those politicians who would deny your word, and even those leaders in churches who would do things their own way, We pray that you would remove ungodly men from leadership, that you would raise up men who stand for the truth of your word, and that you would encourage those who are downhardened this day. Help us, Lord, to stand, give us grace, and encourage us, we do pray, as the days wax evil. And may Christ receive all honour and glory and praise, for he alone is worthy. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.